Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Well, it's so good to be with all of you guys. Uh, Excited to be. It's always a pleasure for me uh, and humbling for me to be preaching, uh, to get the opportunity to come up here and share the word with you all. Um, this morning, we are going to be uh, going over one of our, or this evening, I'm sorry, I always default to morning. This evening, thank you, Thea, we're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 2, 3, and we're going to continue on the sermon series that Tim has kind of been doing. I don't know if I could say he's been perfectly following our core value sermons, but we're going to pick up on core value, the core value of walk, and I thought in order to kind of let that sink in, we would do a little communal exercise. So we're going to do a little responsive reading. I'm going to read the bold and have you guys read. Let's see. No, you want to throw it up on the screen? I'm going to read the bold and have you guys read everything following. We're going to read through our vision statement as a church. No. There we go. All right. So I'll read the bold and then you guys read responsibly. Sound good? Who are we? We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. What is our church's vision for shalom on Summer Avenue? We envision, that was awkward. All right, here we go. We envision a community where everyone in every place thrives in every way, where nothing is broken and nothing is missing, and where our neighborhoods are redefined and reimagined to more fully reflect the glory of God. Next slide, before I start reading. How will we achieve, I think Planning Center is acting slow. There we go. All right. How will we achieve our mission of total transformation in the 38122, 38120, and 38117 zip codes? As a family of faith transformed by the Spirit of God, we will transform the neighborhoods where we live, work, and serve by God's grace and for God's glory. And then one more. We're going to read through our core values. There we go. What are our core values and what do they mean? Worship, glorify the God of the Bible faithfully, passionately, and reverently. Witness, testify to the person and work of Christ. Work, work to equip the saints, serve the city, and cultivate beauty. Wed, unite divided communities. Walk, live with one another in truth and love. So this morning we are, or this evening, sorry, I did it again, Thea. This evening we are going to go through that core value of walk. We're looking at First Peter, and I think it's an appropriate time to talk about love. Um, Tim, I think it was last Sunday, preached a sermon I really loved and emphasized for us as a church body unity, that we're in the middle of some times where it feels like if you open the news, you're like, man, I'm angry at someone, I'm angry at something. And so especially as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, Right now, today, celebrating the 4th of July, when I thought about, man, I'm going to have to preach on the 4th of July, and normally that would be like, hey, we're all celebrating the 4th of July, love it. When I was a kid, it was one of my favorite holidays because you got to eat a lot of food, you got to play frisbee and football in the park with your friends, and then at the end of the night, we blew stuff up. It was awesome, right? But maybe going into this July 4th, if I had to guess, I would say that our congregation falls kind of on, on a different spectrum. Maybe some of us are like, July 4th, why are we celebrating this, right? Some of us are like, I mean, July 4th, all right. And some of us are, yeah, let's do it. And maybe, when we, even when I say that, you're thinking to yourself, 
that makes me kind of angry that somebody else would think something different than I do about July 4th, right? We live in a time when we are split and divided on what is true and what is loving. And as a community, I think the temptation exists for us to begin to fray, to pull apart. And if we are the church of Jesus Christ, as we'll learn right here in 1 Peter, if we're the church of Jesus Christ, we cannot fray and pull apart because we have been called as a community because of the eternal hope that we have in the gospel to pursue earnest love for one another. We as a community, I'll say it one more time, and you'll see it in our passage, we as a community have been called because of the eternal hope we have in the gospel to pursue earnest love together. Amen? All right, so let's read together from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 and on. So starting in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn, newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm excited this morning or this evening, um, Lord, to be here nervous as we open up your word, Lord, and desiring to humbly and faithfully bring it before us. Lord, I pray that as we walk through seasons of life in our country and in our culture where we are tempted to be divided and to be against one another, that you would transform this congregation by your Holy Spirit to pursue an earnest and ridiculous love for one another, Lord, that as those outside of this church see us and our love for you and our love for each other, they would be amazed and they would be attracted and they would want to know what, it, what is this gospel that you speak of. So, Father, I pray that that would be abundantly clear this evening, Lord, and that you would be glorified in your son's name. Amen. All right. So, having been redeemed to an eternal hope, so looking over here to the eternal hope, we are to love one another with earnest love. Let's talk a little bit about the context of 1 Peter. So 1 Peter is a book, 1 and 2 Peter are a book by the, written by the Apostle Peter. This one in particular, so something interesting, just a little fact you can wow your friends with afterwards. Thomas, I'm talking to you. 1 Peter and 2 Peter were written in kind of a different style of Greek, and scholars believe it's because Silas, who's mentioned as Silvanus at the end of 1 Peter, probably wrote 1 Peter on behalf of Peter, so it's a little more refined because he was better educated, and then 2 Peter is a little more rough. So Peter's just an average Joe. We've talked about that before. I've preached before on Peter, right? Peter is one of my favorite disciples because he's this big bumbling idiot who never seems to get it quite right, even though he spent years with Jesus, and then becomes one of the main leaders of the church. And so in his letters, Peter is speaking to a, a church body that's kind of spread out in, in what is now modern-day Turkey, and these Christians are experiencing persecution as Roman citizens. It's not a fun time to be a Roman citizen. This is likely during the, the rule of Nero, and if you know anything about Nero, it's actually kind of a little bit in a debate right now about how bad a dude was Nero, but let's just say, conclusively, wasn't a great dude, okay? He killed almost everyone in his family who had a chance 
to take his throne. He was notorious for murdering Christians, and then he blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians so that would they would experience even further persecution. We believe also during this time that Peter was put to death by Nero. So, not a great time to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, one of my pet peeves when people are preaching sermons or teaching Sunday school lessons is when they say, we are a persecuted people right here in the United States of America, just like the Christians in early Rome. That would be false. That's just not true, right? I don't walk out and think, man, Nero is going to put me to death today if I share the gospel when I'm at Subway getting my lunch, right? None of us is thinking that. So how do we find a commonality with a letter written to a people that are experiencing a persecution that we're not familiar with? Well, here's where I think we can, we can find a commonality. In 1 Peter, when Peter is writing, he's talking to a people who are fundamentally having the core principles of the gospel disputed by the culture around them. They are not popular. I wrote up a little slide, and this is not, uh, this is not something we're going to tell my professors at a seminary about, because I don't know how theologically robust it is, but it's definitely theologically correct. Um, and I wrote up some basic principles of the gospel. Noah, you got that? Yeah, here we go. So these, I think, were, at, at, uh, were in dispute in ancient Rome. First is, eternal life and hope are available to anyone who repents and puts their faith in Christ. In ancient Rome, Christianity was not popular because there was a pantheon of gods. And actually, one of the ways that Nero was documented killing Christians was he would give them the opportunity to pray to the pantheon of gods. If they would denounce their faith and pray to the pantheon of gods, he would save their life. Otherwise, he would put them to death. It was not popular to believe that Jesus Christ was the Lord and Savior of your life. Now, fast forward to today. We don't live in a, in a, war, in a country, in a culture, where we'd be put to death if we believe in Jesus Christ. But we certainly don't live in a culture that says Jesus Christ is the only way, right? If, when we say, in fact, maybe some of us have experienced this, when we say that I have put my hope in the eternal word of Jesus Christ, people look at us like we're crazy, if we say that's the only truth and we fight over that, we defend that stance, people look at us like we're crazy. It would have been the same thing in ancient Rome. The second basic principle of the gospel is you are loved not because of what you do or don't do, but because of who made you and how they created you. Again, here's a principle that would not have hit home in ancient Rome. It just wouldn't have made sense. And in today's world, think about how we try to earn love. Love is like a transaction for us. If you watch any Netflix uh, docudrama or you watch a um, comedy or anything like that that has anything to do with relationships, love is all about you, right? It's what can that person give to you. And inevitably, the conclusion is that you have to earn their love. Like you have to, something about you has to appeal to someone else in order to be loved. And the gospel says you don't have to do any of that. You are loved simply because of who made you and how they made you. That is, you are made in God's image. Third, we grow by imaging the creator God as we are sanctified in Christ through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. This is a part of our core values even as a church. As a church, we believe that if we're going to impact our communities, it starts with us reflecting Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. We as a community have to spiritually grow and, and able to, to be, and able, in order to be able to preach the gospel to our neighbors, right? To reflect Jesus this would, have been the same, this would have seemed absolutely insane to ancient Rome, 
They would have said, no, no, no. You have to, they probably would have said something like, intellectually, you have to grow. You have to be a great philosopher if you're going to have an impact. Or you have to create something great. Or think about Nero who murdered all of his family members because they risked taking away his power. You had to achieve power. And in today's world, isn't that the same kind of thing we're fighting over? When you go to work every day, do you think you're a good worker and valued as a human being because you've performed and excelled? I know for me, even doing this job, Tim will have to sit me down sometimes and say, Stephen, pump the brakes, bro. I don't love you any less if you drop a ball because I'm hell-bent on not dropping a ball, right? And Tim, Tim will say, Cope, I don't need you to pick up the slack. I don't need you to overcompensate. I love you for who you are, and I will love you in this job, and if it moves, gets to a point where you can't do it anymore, then we'll talk about it, all right? But that's, that's countercultural. That's gospel culture. That's gospel community. When have you ever had a boss sit down, to you and, sit down with you and say, I love you because of who you are, not because of what you do? That's a powerful thing. And then finally, our mission is to make disciples of all the nations, glorifying God as we share the good news of this simple gospel. At the core of our calling as believers, it's to be active agents in the redemption of God's creation through the sharing of the gospel, the living out the word and deed of the gospel, right? As we live and breathe and speak in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, in our businesses, as a lawyer, as a doctor, whatever it may be that God has called you to, you are on mission glorifying God as you make disciples of all nations, as you seek to redeem what sin has broken, which is only possible through the hope we find in Jesus Christ. Amen? So, Peter is speaking to a church that is experiencing a culture that is fundamentally opposed to the core principles of the gospel, fundamentally opposed to what it means to know, to love, and to follow Jesus. And as he's speaking into that that church, those group of churches, in this passage he's saying, I want you to love each other in a way that's radically different than the way that those around you are loving. Now, if you imagine being in that, imagine every day you're waking up and you're going out to work and you're kind of wondering, there's this question in the back of of your mind, am I going to be ridiculed today because of my faith in Jesus? Is my life going to be threatened today because of my faith in Jesus? Am I going to be unable to provide for my family because of my faith in Jesus? That would be a really lonely experience. And so this command to love is intended to create a community that is safe and allows God's people to thrive and to grow because they will look distinctly different. Maybe in their outside world, maybe they, even for us today, like we can go to work and we can feel a part of what we're doing or we can go with our family and we can feel a part of who they are. But if they don't know Jesus and they don't share that core principle, those core principles, it can be terribly lonely, can't it? And so when we come together as a church, it is essential that we are united by our love for one another because even if we just disagree on our politics, we disagree on what we do with our money and how we live our life in ways that don't contradict Scripture, we are still called to be unified in our love together, and it is to be radically different than those around us. So let's talk about this passage specifically. Let's dig in a little bit. Let's start with where does earnest, according to Peter, where does this earnest love come from? So look with me at verses 22 through 25. So Peter's going to say, if you're, I'm reading from the ESV translation. If you were to pull out the message, or something, you can Google the message, it might be a little clearer. But he's going to say some things that are a little funky. 
Grace and I were talking through this passage um, this weekend as I was preparing to p- preach. She said, make sure you talk about the word purity, right? What is, what is Paul, I mean, what is Peter talking about when he says purify? Because here's what he says. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then later on, he's going to say pure spiritual milk, and we'll talk about that. But he keeps using this word pure. And here's what he means. He says, having purified your souls, this statement, Peter is talking about faith. He's talking about the gospel. There's a verse in Scripture, I believe it's in Hebrews, um, and someone can correct me later if I'm wrong, but it, it speaks on the only unforgivable sin. Do you know what the only unforgivable sin is? Anybody? Deny, it's blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which could also be translated or interpreted as denying Jesus, right? Not putting your faith in Jesus, which if you are a believer, that should make perfect sense. If you, the only unforgivable sin is not trusting in the God who made you to forgive you of your sin. That's it. That's the only thing. And so you and I, our act of obedience in the life of a believer is putting our faith in Jesus. That's what Peter is talking about. And when he says that we need to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, he's not saying to you, hey, Carter, I want you to go home, look in the mirror, and stay there until you're convinced you're good to go, right? Until you've got a pure heart. That's not what he's saying. He is specifically referring back to this whole, if you were to go back and read the first part of chapter 1, you would see that all Peter really talks about to start out with is the gospel. He talks about a hope that we have in Jesus through the gospel. One of my biggest struggles as a believer, it continues even today and existed especially when I was a young, a young pup, was that I was convinced that the, the process of growing in Jesus was me working as hard as I possibly could to know who Jesus was and then coming and dumping all of my sin down every single week at church, right? We often put in our minds and in our hearts work before grace. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Grace comes before everything. Nothing comes before grace. In fact, especially as Reformed believers, we believe that God pursued you before you even had any idea of who he was. If it were not for God's grace, you wouldn't even be able to put your faith in Jesus. It's through God's grace. First comes grace. Then we have faith, right? And then comes obedience. As we grow in the gospel, stemming from God's grace to us, then we're able to be obedient. So when Peter says to his people, I want you to have love from a pure heart, he's not referring to anything that they need to do. He's saying the gospel has made you pure. You have been purified through your faith, through your obedience and faith to Jesus. And then he goes on to hammer it even harder. This hope that we have, this gospel that has purified us, this grace that we're talking about here, this grace is different than anything the world would offer you. In ancient Rome, there were philosophies on everything. They were built, built off of the ancient Greek philosophers, and they could answer any question you have. They would sit for hours and hours and hours thinking about answers to hard questions. And Peter is saying, take all of that, chuck it out a window, because all of it's going to go away, right? All of it's going to fade. The only imperishable truth is the truth of God's grace and love to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you hear me? The only imperishable truth, the only untaintable, unforgettable, unassailable truth is God's love and grace for you through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen?
And so if we are reading this as we dig into what that love looks like, what earnest love looks like, and we find ourselves working, then we need to rewind, go back to grace, and start over again, right? Through God's grace, we put our faith in obedience, and then God, God will produce the fruit in our hearts and in our life. Now, let's talk about what earnest love looks like. Looking at verse 1 in chapter 2, Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. I have a confession to make. We talk about uh, what love looks like. Grace and I love to watch, and I'm, it's a good thing Tim isn't here because he might fire me on the spot, The Bachelor. Love The Bachelor. One of my favorite TV shows, Guilty Pleasures, are the, is The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Bill and Kim, you didn't hear anything. It's my in-laws over there. Um, I love watching The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. And here's why I bring it up. One, because Grace wants to invite you all to come watch it with us uh, this season, if you're in. But also, because if, if, you were going, if you're going to think about what does love look like, I want you to think about what happens on The Bachelor or like survivor, big brother, etc. do exactly the opposite of that, okay? That's what love looks like. When Peter says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, he's defining a community that directly contradicts everything the world holds valuable, right? And if you've ever watched The Bachelor, you know that basically, like in the first 10 minutes, that's all the show is. That's exactly what happens. It's so entertaining because you're just watching people fighting over what they think is love and is really just fame, and all these things are what they're doing. And if they come out in the end with at least one friend, I think they won the game, right? Because they've been backbiting the whole time. We, brothers and sisters, we are called to have nothing to do with that. Peter doesn't say, like, if you want to, put away some of your malice. Maybe if it comes to you, put away some of that deceit. If you're feeling like it, don't be a hypocrite. And it'd probably be best not to be envious. And guys, can we just not slander each other anymore? No, he says, put away all malice. All means all. All deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Put it all away. Our community as a church, defined by the love that we have received by Jesus Christ, should look nothing like that at all. Nothing. And especially, especially today, in our world today, that hits hard, doesn't it? Man, it, could be, it would be really easy as we come to church or as we're coming to core families, as we're engaging in Bible study or something we have going on in the app, or even if you're just living as fellow believers in our world today, it would be really easy to be like, you know, so-and-so thinks of this, right? You know what I'm talking about? Can you believe they believe that? Can you believe that they would vote like that? Can you believe they support that? Man, guys, if we do that, if we fall into that trap, it will destroy us. And the beauty of the gospel is that we can be unified by those core principles of the, of, the, of the gospel, right? Core principles. And that as we follow together faithfully the teaching of Scripture, as we walk out our faith in obedience, we will grow. And as we grow, the things that don't matter, the things that are superficial and, and perishable, will begin to fall away. And we will be united by the imperishable word of God. We will be united by those gospel principles. And that uniting by gospel principles should fill us with love and care for one another. Here's how Paul describes love in 1 Corinthians. You know this passage, chapter 13. Love is patient. 
Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, and it endures all things. And then John in 1 John says this. This is the Apostle John. Jesus said, my most beloved disciple. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. The gospel calls us to an active, self-sacrificial love that looks absolutely different than The Bachelor, right? Absolutely different. Amen, Blake. So, let's wrap up as we talk about how we grow in earnest love. Peter uses this really funky phrase that probably only makes sense to mothers. He says, long, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What in the world does Peter mean, like newborn infants crave pure spiritual milk? Well, if you've ever had a newborn or been around a newborn, you know that when they are hungry, the only thing they want is their mother, right? That's it. They want their mother's milk, and they scream. I still remember... When, Grace, when Dottie was first born, this is like right at the beginning of the pandemic, so we probably had Dottie for two weeks. The world's completely shut down. I've taken my very first trip to Walmart in a hazmat suit, right? And I get a call from Grace about 10 minutes after I, actually, I probably was more like 30 minutes, and she goes, Stephen, Grace has started, or Dottie started screaming as soon as you left the house, and she will not stop. And Grace is sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. She doesn't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Like, I have no clue. I'm two weeks into this thing, and the world's falling apart. So I'm just like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'll be home in a minute. So I race home as fast as I can, and I find Grace and Dottie peacefully sitting in the nursery, and Grace is feeding her, right? What did she want? She wanted food. She wanted to be fed. We didn't know. We were just figuring it out. What Peter is saying is that you and I, if we seek to grow in love, if we seek to love one another earnestly, we have to return to the spiritual milk of the gospel over and over and over again. It will nourish us. It will allow us to grow. And he finishes it with this kind of this short little phrase, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is not if you don't know Jesus. If you haven't tasted that the Lord is good, you cannot reflect this kind of love. You may try. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I mean... I think I love people, people pretty well, and I'm not going to doubt that. I'm not going to throw shade on you. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, I can tell you that I could not love well, and I don't think I love all that well anyway, I, but I couldn't do even the little that I do do if it weren't for the love and grace of Jesus Christ. It's so funny. Like When I, I was in counseling recently and talking to my counselor, and I had this epiphany, and whenever I have an epiphany in, in counseling, my counselor looks at me like, yeah, duh, you idiot. Like I've been trying to tell you that for like six months. And I looked at him and I went, I think when I get upset with grace, I'm really upset with me. And he goes, oh, really? Here's the thing. If God's grace is at work in me, removing the shame, removing the despair, removing the hopelessness and the anger and the frustration that I have even with my own self, what is that naturally going to do? It's going to bleed out into my relationships with others. If we are being transformed by the gospel over and over and over again, it's going to bleed out into the way that we care and love for others. 
It's going to make it so much easier when one of our churchmates are like, hey, I need to talk to you about this uh, recent Supreme Court decision, and our blood starts to boil up, right? It's going to be a lot easier to calm down and have a rational conversation with someone about what we're thinking and what we believe if God's grace is at work in our heart constantly spurring us towards love for another, right? Love for our brothers and our sisters. I've had this drawing. Let's see, Noah. Uh, you can tell that I did that. That's a lie. Grace did that. Um, really quickly, too. It took like 30 seconds to do that, and I had, I had sketched something out on my whiteboard and taken a picture that looked dreadful. Um, Dottie can already draw better than I can, so we're doing great. Um, I thought of, I was trying to think of an illustration for how we could kind of put all of these things together, and this is what I came up with. This is the, a metaphor for what Peter is laying out in this passage. He starts with, before he commands earnest love, he starts with your faith and your obedience, your faith through your obedience to the gospel, meaning you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. That's where we're planted, the gospel. Matthew talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. Let's see, I marked it real quick. We'll read it. And you know the story well, especially if you uh, went to VBS ever in your life. Matthew 7, Jesus is preaching, and he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You know that passage? Is that familiar to you? That's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that because we have put our hope in the imperishable, internal gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are rooted. Noah, you can throw it back up there. Then... He's commanding us to love, and love is a spiritual fruit. If we are going to love one another well, again, we have to be rooted in the gospel. If you have tasted, that's when you want to continue to going back to your mother's milk, the pure spiritual milk, right? If we have tasted God's grace through the gospel, then we will return to the gospel over and over and over again. So our earnest love is a fruit of our faith rooted in the gospel. And then finally, what Peter is saying in this very last couple of verses is he's saying that we only grow our sun in our rain, right? Not, not, not necessarily like a bad thing with the storm clouds. That was a, a dicey decision to put them up there. But sun and rain, nourishing a plant, the things that a plant needs to grow, are, we have, those are our pure spiritual milk. Those are our spiritual disciplines. That's prayer. That's reading the Word. That's if, especially if you were an early first, first century Christian, you probably didn't have the written Word. That means that you were going and fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters and listening to the Word being taught. That means you were showing up to church and Peter's letter had arrived and you were super excited. You were going to stay there all night because you wanted to know what this disciple of Jesus was saying about what it meant to love and follow him. So we have to return and fellowship and community together to hear the spoken word. So it's reading the word, it's praying, it's worship, it's the spoken word, it's serving together, it's evangelism, it's discipleship, it's all the things we talked about in those core values. It's almost like Tim and our elders read the Bible once, right? We can only grow if we plug in. You, you are not going to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ if you pull away and isolate yourself and make it your own thing. If you come to your faith every single day and you say, this is my cross and I'm going to carry it better than anybody else has ever done it, and I'm going to pump some iron, I'm going to work real hard, I'm going to grit it out, you will not grow. If you come every day, you pick up your cross and you say, Jesus, it is only by your grace that I can walk this out, then you will grow and you have to return over and over and over again to the pure spiritual milk that defines what it means to know and to follow Jesus. 
I was thinking finally kind of about how do we, what would be a practical way of learning how to do this other than just putting it into practice. And I think putting it into practice is great. But as cheesy as it is, and I promise this wasn't like an easy cop-out for a conclusion, if you really want to know what it looks like to live in gospel grace, to bear spiritual fruit, and to come continually back to the Father for pure spiritual milk, just go read the Gospels, right? Look at the life of Jesus. Do you know where Jesus was when he was arrested? He was praying in the garden, praying, weeping, and praying. Do you know where Jesus was when he was just a little boy and his parents couldn't find him? He was in the synagogue listening to the Scriptures being read and talking about it with the elders. Over and over and over again in the life of Jesus, we see all of these things, right? We see him teaching and discipling. We see him evangelizing. We see him praying. We see him reading the Word and teaching the Word and listening to the Word spoken. We see him in synagogues and out of synagogues. We see him loving and caring for those who can't love and care for themselves, loving and caring for his gosh darn stupid disciples like Peter, right? That's the same thing that we have to do. That's what we're called to do. At the end, actually it's not at the end, it's in the next chapter, but it's the end of the next chapter, Peter uh, says this about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as I leave you, as we kind of wrap up, I want to give you this confidence because, again, remember, you are being called this week to go and to practice earnest love, but you cannot do it unless you first root your identity in the grace of Jesus Christ. And this is how Peter puts it. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Sounds like Ephesians 2.10, right? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. One of my favorite lines in Scripture, once you were not a people, once you were just a scattered bunch of dum-dums, right, doing your own thing, acting like you're on The Bachelor, and now God has made you into something marvelous. Once you had not received mercy, once you were the Samaritan on the side, or once you were the Jew on the side of the road begging for someone to help you, beaten and bruised and bloodied, and now, now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as ones that do not belong in the fleshly world that we live in, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you, when they persecute you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Brothers and sisters, this week, and as we grow as a church, my prayer for us is that we pursue an earnest love, an earnest love that comes from a living, eternal hope found only in the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray.